0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special collaborative episode between the Strange Matters podcast, Don't Break the Oath, Zing This, and Knock Once for Yes. I am Sean, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Eric.
1: What's up, guys?
0: So the idea for this episode came about after we just recently joined a new Facebook group called Paranormal Mythology and Weird Podcast. And there's a number of other really good podcasts there, so we thought it'd be a fun idea to partner up with a few of them and put together a little show featuring a couple of these new podcasting friends. So for this episode, each podcast and their respective host will discuss a number of myths, legends, strange crimes, or unexplained events from their corner of the world. We've got some fellow podcasters helping us represent Virginia over at Zing This, and Don't Break the Oath and Knock Once for Yes podcast will be telling some stories from across the pond. So for now, let's just get into this episode, and we hope all you listeners enjoy.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast, where we discuss all that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I'm your host for this episode, Eric, joined by my fellow co-host, Sean.
0: Hello, everybody. For this special episode, we will be discussing two legends and mysteries of our home state of Virginia. As one of the original colonies of the United States, Virginia has had a long and storied past and has been a place of great importance throughout U.S. history having played important parts in the Revolutionary War, and being a key location in the Civil War. Of course, with its long history, there are plenty of strange and unexplained cases and events that have occurred throughout the many years, so we have chosen a few of our favorites to share in this episode.
1: Yeah, the Old Dominion State is full of all kinds of weird, different things. Any place with such a vast, rich history like Virginia is bound to have some interesting myths and legends. And Virginia definitely doesn't disappoint. So since I've lived here all of my 27 years of life, I consider myself to be somewhat of an expert, and I've heard stories from people who have encountered ghosts in some of the old Civil War era buildings around the medical campus, all kinds of different stuff like that.
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot of different paranormal hot spots and hauntings throughout the state. One example of a great legend is the episode we did a long time back discussing the Bunny Man Bridge in Northern Virginia, which was a spot where a supposed psychopathic murderer in a bunny suit has been terrorizing the locals throughout the year. But for this episode, we got two new cases to talk about, and the first one is the Black Sisters of Christenberg. The Black Sisters is a dark story of three sisters who, as a legend goes, were a notorious murderous family. Each of these three sisters is either convicted or believed to have murdered at least one person, most of them family members. This makes for a pretty special story as it is already pretty rare to hear of female serial killers, and it's even rarer to murder as part of a group, let alone all of them being in one family.
1: Yeah, the name the Black Sisters actually was a, kind of a, a term that came about from the fact that they were almost always seen in public wearing black clothing and they're frequently accused of being witches or Satanists given their just kind of mysterious nature and their dark demeanors. And they really were kind of shunned by society. And whenever they'd come around, people would kind of avoid them and move to the other side of the street so they could stay away from. Them. So they had a pretty dark reputation as it was.
0: Yeah, definitely. So the three sisters were Mary Sneed Carolyn Martin and Virginia Wardlaw, and they were originally born in Georgia, but it wasn't until they moved to Virginia that their infamy would really begin. So the sisters, who would go down in history under the nicknames of Black Sisters, as Eric was talking about, they moved to Christiansburg, which is a town in Montgomery County in the western portion of the state, around 1902. It was here that Virginia, who is described as unmarried, cultured, and beautiful founded the Montgomery Female Academy. Her sisters, Caroline and Mary, the latter which was a widow, also helped their sister run the girls' boarding school. Beyond the morbid tale of the sisters, this boarding school itself has pretty, quite the dark reputation about it. There are claims about how the lights were turned on by themselves at night while the custodians of the school were cleaning, and they all have to go around and turn them all back off again before they left.
1: Yeah, these odd occurrences in the school became so severe that it actually led to the school eventually getting closed down. And the paranormal occurrences that would happen included spontaneous fires, tainted water. There were these random ear-shattering screams that would just kind of come from one hallway. Um, And then one time there was even the sound of this baby crying coming from the outside well which might be connected with one of the stories we're going to talk about. But there were just all kinds of weird things, spontaneous fires that would happen in the kitchen, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, the school really had a legend itself or unexplained phenomena. It was especially during this time that they were taking care of the school that the bizarre nature of the sisters began to attract attention to themselves to the point that they would become near legends of the rural area. A driver in the town made a report saying that the sisters would frequently hire him to drive the trio to the nearby cemetery. And he would often stop at the edge of the grounds and watch his passengers while they walked further in, disappearing into the night. Now, one night after several such occurrences, curiosity got the better of him and the driver discreetly followed them. And as he said in the dim moonlight, he saw them gather around a grave and the Black Sisters began to make strange gestures skyward and murmured garbled incantations, which he could not understand. He later told that his whole body shook with fear, so strong was his feeling that evil was near. So just from that story, you kind of get the uh, implication that some kind of ritual was taking place, or perhaps a witchcraft, or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, it definitely seems to describe a situation where they're trying to summon something or communicate with a, a deceased soul or a ghost or something. But this was kind of the reputation that the Black Sisters already had. So, I mean, this could this guy could have been the one that started it all, quite honestly. It doesn't have to be... It's not that it was necessarily based in fact. He might have just made it up.
0: That's true. Or cashed in later once their reputation was already well known. Now, most of the tales surrounding the sisters involve the academy at which they taught, which we had mentioned in part earlier. There are stories that the sisters would roam the halls of the school together, chanting unknown and nonsensical words. There were several mysterious rooms that were completely off-limits, having up to three padlocks keeping it secured from the public, and no one would ever learn what secrets were hidden behind these doors while the sisters were in charge. Furthermore, children would often be moved from one class to another without any explanation. And several of the young ladies at the academy even claimed that Several times they would wake up to find one of the sisters inside the dormitories during the dark nights, keeping a silent watch over their students while they slept. However, while there were many odd and unexplained things that occurred at the academy over the years, none of the stories about the school is as disturbing as that of the women who ruled over it. It was during this time that several disturbing and mysterious events occurred, including the sudden disappearance of an illegitimate baby that was born to one of Virginia's students.
1: Yeah, at the time that Virginia was headmaster, it's thought that this unwanted pregnancy came about as a direct result of her mismanagement of the school. And despite Virginia being an exceptionally strict headmaster, her old age allowed things at the school to kind of get a little bit out of control. And she tried to sweep this scandal under the rug... Unfortunately, in a small town such as this at the time, the word spread rather quickly. And when the baby was finally born, no one ever even saw it. It simply disappeared, as Sean mentioned, and the mother never spoke a word of it.
0: Yeah, there were a lot of events like this where people would die or disappear and there's an implication, a strong implication, that the sisters were involved somehow, but to the official record, nothing really said. So one of the most disturbing events of the black sisters involved John, who is the son of Mary Sneed, one of the sisters. And John was living with his wife in Tennessee when one of the other sisters, Caroline, arrived to bring him back with her to Virginia to help at the school. Now at first, he outright refused claiming that his aunt was trying to ruin his marriage and even called the police to evict her from staying at his house. For some unknown reason, though, John eventually submitted to his aunt Caroline and returned to Virginia with her. Some claim that Caroline perhaps had some type of hypnotic power over him.
1: Yeah, and after this, John nearly died twice, once by falling off a train, and the other was half drowning in a well on the school grounds. Though odd, both were considered accidental, um, though some suspected foul play was involved in the scenario. So, several weeks after his arrival in Virginia, John Sneed was found burned to death in his bed. His death was ruled an accident, even though his nightclothes were doused in kerosene. Suspiciously, just one week before John's horrifying death, His mother, Mary, and her two sisters had taken out a sizable life insurance policy on him.
0: Yeah, so if that's not suspicious, I don't know what is. Uh, Around the same time, one of the other sisters, Caroline, her husband and young son, Hugh, were also both found dead, suspected of dying after falling down a long flight of stairs. You would think that this would have brought some attention on to the family even more. I'm not sure how you could have two people fall down a flight of steps at the same time, and die without a real investigation, but for now the Black Sisters just went on life as normal, minus a few family members. Several more questionable activities and mysterious accidents happened to several acquaintances of the sisters, but still no real investigation was ever launched until the deadly family would move out of state. So the sisters would move up briefly to New York in 1909, perhaps hoping to avoid any trouble in Virginia, since no one had caught on to their murderous ways as of yet. However, it would appear that the Black sisters could not change their true colors, as shortly after they moved, Caroline's daughter, Osi, was found suspiciously drowned in a tub. O.C. was actually married to her cousin, Fletcher, who was another one of Mary's sons, and also had a significant life insurance policy behind that the sisters collected soon after.
1: Osi's autopsy revealed that she had sedatives in her bloodstream. Um, So, you know, one could argue that she might have been intentionally overdosed for that purpose, but it was notable that O.C. was a drug user in the past. Um, However, the most suspicious part of her death is that she had yet another life insurance policy placed Just a week before her death. So this is the third person that's died mysteriously after having a large life insurance policy opened up.
0: Yeah, so there's a pattern starting to form here. It was at this point that finally the authorities caught on, and after some quick searching into their past in the state of Virginia, the police could connect the string of mysterious deaths, including Mary's son, John, and went on to arrest the sisters. Caroline Martin was convicted of the murder of her daughter, Osi, and sentenced to seven years in a mental state hospital, where she would ultimately die after hanging herself. It was also strongly suspected in hindsight that she had likely killed her husband and her young son, Hugh, as well, which would mean that she had basically murdered off her entire family. Mary pled guilty to her son's murder back in Virginia, but actually got off on technicality. As for her fate, she would quickly flee to Colorado, where she would simply disappear. As for the last and oldest sister, Virginia, apparently she did not want to face jail time for her crimes, and she would end up starving herself to death in her jail cell before the judge could make a final ruling.
1: Yeah, this the story of the Black Sisters had a fair amount of different perspectives floating around out there that we had researched. Um, There appeared to be a number of different stories on the final outcomes of the sister. One explanation that I came across was that Mary was confronted by the police and she actually tried to resist arrest and was promptly shot to death by the police. Caroline, years later, committed suicide in prison by hanging herself and Virginia was convicted and sentenced to death by gassing.
0: Yeah, I think that's something you get when you have a story that's over 100 years old. You have these variations and spinoffs that start to appear.
1: Even still, um, with all the different stories that we've researched, this one had a, a particularly high discrepancy rate from various different sources that we looked at.
0: Yeah, that's true. Now, while the Black Sisters would only be officially convicted for the death of O.C., it is believed they were responsible for a number of suspicious deaths back in the state of Virginia, where most of their activities occurred. The full extent of the Sisters' crimes would unfortunately go with them to the grave. Since no in-depth investigations were ever really launched into their morbid and questionable past in our state of Virginia, the mystery of the Black Sisters and the potential of their serial crimes will likely forever remain unsolved.
1: Yeah, so Virginia is now buried in Sunset Cemetery in Christiansburg, which is actually where I went to college at Virginia Tech, which is in Blacksburg, Virginia, but it's really close to Christiansburg, and we go there a fair amount. So I just thought it was kind of interesting if I had known about this back when I was in college. I definitely would have gone to the cemetery and tried to have found her grave.
0: Yeah, that would have been a cool. I think one of our sources had the person who uh, went out there and saw her grave. Now, as for the notorious Montgomery Academy that the Black Sisters were in charge of, it was eventually torn down after it fell into a state of disrepair. Eventually, a new middle school was built on the grounds, which is still around today in operation. And to this day, there are still some claims of those who go there that they feel a dark presence. And over the years, there have been several sightings of three ghostly figures all in black that wander the hallways.
1: I really don't think there's a lot of credibility coming from some of the stories that we're reading from some of these various different sources. I mean, it does seem to be a pretty popular story in the area, and everybody kind of wants to have their own little take on it. I read probably three or four different completely falsified stories of people who had visited the grave and found something or experienced this encounter with one of the three figures and stuff like that. So it is kind of a high notoriety kind of story in the area but not a lot of credibility behind a lot of the stuff on the internet
0: yeah that's true well that is the story of the black sisters of christiansburg virginia and for now we'll go on to our second story and that is the hollywood cemetery vampire and this is one of virginia's oldest and most popular legends now hollywood cemetery which is located in the capital city of richmond was originally started in the 1840s and holds the remains of notable figures such as Presidents James Monroe and John Tyler and the decorated Civil War General Jeb Stewart.
1: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of cemeteries. I I like to kind of go enjoy creeping myself out by going to them at night, and there's always a million different places to kind of sneak around and explore in the cemeteries. And I actually have some loved ones who are buried in the Hollywood Cemetery here in Richmond, And it's also somewhere that I've visited a couple times at night. Um, And, you know, of course, I'm very careful not to tread on any of the graves or do anything careless. But they're super interesting places to visit and kind of read names and calculate, you know, how long people have lived. Um, But at Hollywood Cemetery, there are a lot of really large crypts and all sorts of awesome structures to kind of check out.
0: Yeah, a lot of the tombs there are really cool to look at. Uh, While many visit the cemetery for its historical significance and fascinating structures like Eric was talking about, the site also has a dark side to it as well. Though the cemetery has a number of legends surrounding it, none are as popular as the story of the Richmond Vampire. There are several different accounts to the vampire that has arisen over the years, but all revolve around the mausoleum, of ww pool as some stories go pool himself was a vampire having to flee to the united states after being chased out of england for his blood-sucking ways
1: yes some people think that the ww printed on the side of the mausoleum resemble fangs which is also just a little tidbit that kind of contributes to the lore um however this is Probably just a coincidence, but it is still kind of a, a strange coincidence. You don't know a lot of people with their first two initials who are W. Um, but one thing that is undeniable is that the the flames of this legend have been fanned by the students in the adjacent VCU campuses where both Sean and me completed some of our studies. Um, it was actually featured in one of the VCU newspapers, I think the earliest... Dates back to 1976 when they did their first feature on the story.
0: Yeah, so it's definitely been around for decades and decades.
1: And it's it's literally within walking distance of the campus itself. I mean, it's a long walk, but you know the college students go down there and check it out all the time. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, so there are a bunch of different versions of the Hollywood Cemetery Vampire or the Richmond Vampire. The most popular version of the tale revolves around the collapse of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad's Church Hill Tunnel under Church Hill, which is a neighborhood of eastern Richmond. The tunnel opened in 1875 and was part of the old Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. Initial construction was nightmarish in its description, due in part to Virginia's clay soil, which changed with rainfall and caused frequent cave-ins. At some point, the tunnel was abandoned until 1925, when repairs were started to make it operational once again. So October 2nd of that year, an engineer named Thomas Joseph Mason and several others ventured into the tunnel. According to the legend, the presence of the men caused an ancient evil that lurked in the tunnel to awaken, which made the tunnel start to collapse. After the disaster was starting, other men rushed to the tunnel to help any survivors, and it was here that the nightmare of the Richmond Vampire really started. As the story goes, a hideous creature with jagged teeth and hanging skin had emerged from the tunnel collapse. The frightened men had no idea what this abomination of nature was, but decided that it was some type of unholy creature and decided to kill it. This creature escaped and made its way towards the James River. Pursued by the angry mob, the bloody creature ran straight into the Hollywood cemetery. Once inside here, it vanished into the mausoleum of W.W. W. Poole, and the chasing men could not make any sense of what had just happened or where the creature went. As for a more reasonable explanation to the tunnel disaster, it is thought today that the horrifying creature that the onlookers actually saw was that of a man named Benjamin Mosby, who managed to crawl out of the tunnel after the collapse. Mosby was a 28-year-old fireman who had been shoveling coal aboard the train with Engineer Mason. Mosby had been working on with no shirt when the cave-in started, and it's likely that the boiler ruptured, which caused horrible burns along his entire upper body. The man managed to escape the collapse with broken teeth and seared skin, barely conscious and mangled from his injuries. Now, Mosby would ultimately die the day after the cave-in at Grace Hospital,
1: yeah, I could see how this would be a pretty terrifying sight for somebody to come out of this, probably at the time, a pretty horrific accident, um, and you're thinking you're just not going to find anybody in this pile of rubble alive, but somebody's alive, moving, they're covered in dirt, this Mosby guy was a pretty, apparently pretty jacked dude, he's pretty muscular. Um, but he's got all his skin torn off, and his teeth are mashed in, and his face is jacked up. So I, I could probably understand how somebody would misinterpret him as being a, a vampire.
0: Especially if you hear the story from, like, secondhand. Like, yeah. some person who was there describing to somebody else, they would probably think, like, God, that sounds like a monster.
1: Oh, yeah, this story would explode. It would be all over the place. So it does sort of seem to fit the description. Um, One thing that I couldn't really clarify was that Mosby somehow managed to make it to Grace Hospital, and that was where he would ultimately die from his injuries. However, the story says that the men chased the vampire-like figure to the tomb of W.W. Pool, where it disappeared inside the tomb. So I'm reading all this information and trying to figure out, are we simply to believe that somehow Mosby went back to the tunnel and was found there and taken to the hospital? I don't know if he was, like, unconscious the entire time. Because, I mean, if they had found Mosby's body at W.W. Poole's tomb, then that would make the story seem to fit a little bit better.
0: The only thing I could see maybe is... Maybe Mosby runs out, and he's just out of his mind with pain, so just kind of sprints in some direction, um, running just for a couple minutes and ends up in the cemetery and passes out. group is following him, and the first couple people get there, just immediately pick him up and you know take him to the hospital, and then when the rest of the group arrives, they see that he's just suddenly gone or something, and then like the, kind of like what I was just saying, they tell the story to other people, and it just kind of spins from there, so... I don't know maybe he managed to run and make it to the cemetery, or I don't know if that thing like the entire WW pool is just entirely tacked on and really Mosby just barely was able to climb out of the tunnel
1: right no, that's entirely possible. I mean you know the main issue with trying to find information on stories like this is just the story' it's, it's just such an old story I mean all the way back to the Civil War area era. Um, so it's hard to answer some of these questions, but I just think there's a reasonable amount of doubt there. Maybe there was something else involved.
0: Could be. Or could this be several conflicting stories, like we really don't know what exactly happened, and we just have to piece together several different stories to make a best guess. In any case, after the eight days of rescue efforts, only the body of engineer Thomas Mason was ever recovered from the rubble, And it is thought that the bodies of several other workers were left in the tunnel, which was sealed off shortly thereafter.
1: Yeah. I think there was estimated to be, they think there was at least two workers that were sealed behind the wooden doors of the tunnel at the Western entrance. And the rescue teams just simply couldn't get them out without, you know, risking their own lives because every time they would go inside the tunnel, a new portion of the tunnel would collapse. Um, so, you know, and the other thing is that there's no real way to identify the men that were left in there because there were no employment records at the time. And, you know, people would just wander around looking for work and they'd work a job for a few weeks and then move on. So it's really difficult to kind of identify who it was. But, you know, there have been attempts to go back into the tunnel in recent times like within the last few years but it's just such a dangerous area it's now like filled halfway up with water and under the water there's all these layers of silt so it's like nothing you can really just like walk into without risking getting completely stuck so it's a really dangerous area to be in
0: yeah i've seen some pictures of it from more recent times and it does just kind of have a creepy look to it especially if you know the history behind it So as we discussed, the Hollywood Cemetery Vampire has always been one of Richmond's and Virginia's oldest and strangest legends. But it could just be that the vampire creature was really just a badly burned and injured worker who got caught in the collapsing tunnel.
1: Yeah, and I kind of like to entertain the fact that, you know, maybe there was something strange out there. Um, Unfortunately, if one is to believe in the story of the vampire... They would have to accept the fact that it hasn't been active in quite some time, given that there haven't been any sightings in the last 92 years since the initial event. So while the story of the vampire is likely built up on just a bunch of sensational stories, the carnage of the Churchill Tunnel is still a very real event. All right, everybody, well, that wraps up this episode of Strange Matters Podcast, our special collaborative episode on the state of Virginia. If you would like to check out more from Strange Matters, please visit us at our website, strangematterspodcast.com. So until next time at Strange Matters Podcast, take it easy.
0: Bye, everybody.
2: Hello! Hello there. Right, we are Don't Break the Oath Podcast, and we are based in a little town called Grimsby, which is in England, for those North who East don't know. And, uh, and if you don't know, I, uh, I, I suggest you don't come <laughs> uh, uh, on a holiday, because it's uh, pretty... It's grim. Yeah. That's why it's, that's called, why Grimsby. it's called Grimsby. Yeah. yeah, that's it. But um, essentially, what we do is uh, a paranormal podcast, and again, we, we mix sort of interviews with... Mostly we do topics... But we do do the odd interview here and there. Uh, so if you're into the paranormal, then you've come to the right place if you yep. come, come and uh, listen to our show. So we just thought we'd just go into a couple of local stories. Uh, nothing to write home about, essentially. But just the little you know, things that happen in this area. Now, the, the area we particularly live in is called Lincolnshire. And uh, it's become known as the Lincolnshire Triangle because there's a lot of UFO activity Hot that spots. seems yeah that seems to go on mm-hmm. around here. Yep. Um, and... So that ends, we thought we'd just tell you a couple of stories. So the first story that I'm going to give you is, a, is quite an interesting one, actually. And um, most people will be familiar with wind turbine energy farms now. Uh, the You know, the throughout the world, out everywhere, aren't they? So, you know, most people know what we're talking about here. Well, this happened in uh, 2009 in a place just up the road called Conning's Home. And the story goes like this. UFO damages wind farm in Coninsome 2009. Mysterious damage inflicted upon a wind farm turbine gripped the nation in 2009. The turbine at Coninsome lost one of its 66 feet, or 20 meter, blade, and another was badly damaged in the early hours of January 4th. UFO enthusiasts claim that the damage was caused by a mysterious craft. County Councillor for the area, Robert Palmer, said... He had seen, and this is a direct quote, a round white light that had seemed to be hovering over the site. Eco Tricity, which owned the site, said the extent of the damage was unique. Founder Dale Vince told the BBC, we have been crawling over it and have sent bits off for analysis to see if we can work out what caused it. Until we have some idea, some plausible explanation... That it was not a UFO, I don't think we should rule it out. And that's the you know guy who wears this thing. Yeah, he added, to make one of those blades fall off or to bend it. And I suppose I should mention to people. I mean, if you can see pictures of this, it was absolutely like it was like almost Constantine wasn't it. Ooh. It was it was crushed. And you know, like what they say, twenty meter long blade, and you know, it's a big yeah. chunk of metal. Yeah. Um, to make one of those blades fall off or to bend it takes a lot. Dozens of witnesses reported seeing flashing orange-coloured lights following the incident, and a range of theories emerged in the national media. Manufacturer Enercon later released a report suggesting the £1 million turbine had suffered mechanical failure, causing one of its 65-feet blades to break off. Yeah, that likely story.
3: Yeah. Right, uh, my one is, the, the headlines here was Pilot Disappears After Making Contact With UFO Over North Sea. It's in 1970. Right, American Exchange pilot Captain William Schaffner disappeared after allegedly making visual contact with a UFO while flying a Lightning F-6 jet over the North Sea. Right, legend has it that the aircraft was found on the seabed with its canopy closed and pilot seat empty. According to one version of events, Captain Schaffner had joined an airborne investigation into an unidentified aircraft which was travelling at speeds of around, get this, 17,000 miles per hour. Mm. Right. Uh, between the Shetland Islands and Norway, uh, when Captain uh, Schaffner, using the call sign Foxtrot 94, reached the object, it was alleged he saw a conical shape Surrounded by light with a separate spherical glass-like object nearby. The radar signals of the two objects then merged into one. Hovering motionless motionless over the sea. Before one sped away at more than 20,000 miles per hour. Mm. But the Ministry of Defence later said Captain Shaffner was taking part in a tactical evaluation exercise on the night he disappeared. Uh, the UFO was, in fact, a slow-moving RAF Shackleton. Yeah, like sh- Which was sent to Shadow. The MOD claims Captain Schaffner flew dangerously low below the Shackleton and the aircraft hit the sea. It said after hitting the sea, Captain Schaffner opened the canopy manually to escape the sinking uh, aircraft. However, he became separated from his emergency life support equipment and was lost at sea. The canopy closed as the hydraulic pressure decayed while the aircraft was sinking. This, the MOD claims, explains the mystery of the closed canopy.
2: Nah, I just can't see that happening,
3: can you? No, that's... um...
2: A canopy closing...
3: No, you know, at the bottom of the sea. No, that's uh, no, the, the, that's impossible. To yeah, I would say no. so. I mean, the pressure uh, hydraulics a, are
2: powerful, yeah. but no, not
3: be. not not. You don't. You can't go against the
2: the pressure. You know, and this so. was an experienced pilot managed yeah. to fly into the sea. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's cool. And, then, and then you don't. Then how did they explain the twenty thousand mile an hour movement on radar and stuff like that? Anyway, that's just you know, that's just two stories. But here's another. The last one we'll give you is this just a little quick one yeah. here. And it was a UFO scared off by RAF aircraft in Cleeforps. And this happened in 1956, uh, September 1956 to be precise. The RAF station of Manby logged and observed through a telescope and radar an 80 foot in diameter UFO hovering at 54,000 feet over Cleeforps. The spherical glass-like object was visible for more than an hour and disappeared only when it was approached by RAF aircraft.
3: Again, you know, outcomes. wasn't is, there just for an ice cream, was it? He no, I mean, it wasn't there for you know, a stick of rock. And they could see, <laughs> you know,
2: it's on radar, they can see it with their own yeah. eyes, you know, with the aid of a telescope, of obviously, it. but, yeah, but yeah. you could see it, so... Anyway, you know, that's your stories from around here, so, you know, if you like what you wear yeah. today, then come and have a listen to... If got your stories for us, just come on, let us know. Yeah. Come and have a listen to Don't yeah. Break the Oath podcast, and uh, we'll be glad to, uh, to say hello. Thanks, guys, yeah. and... Uh, Thank you to everybody at Strange Matters Podcast. Stay true.
4: Hello everyone, I'm Zinger.
5: And I'm Ellie.
4: And we're from the Zing Zing This This Podcast. Podcast. And that's spelled...
5: Z-E-N-G... This. That's right.
4: And we cover everything from nerdy topics from video games to comics to movies to Mm -hmm. basically anything nerdy and stuff like that. But we wanted to help out Strange Matters podcast because they're also a fellow Virginian podcast just like we are.
5: Well, Virginia is the state of lovers.
4: Of the paranormal, apparently. Yes. All right, Ellie, why don't you go first?
5: Well, I always find this one very intriguing. Um, It's in the Virginia Tidewater region. Oh. It's in a little small town called West Point.
4: Interesting. And
5: yeah, and there's this mysterious light that a lot of people have reported over a hundred years um, along the railroad tracks in that so area. So
4: it's so it's a lantern light, like maybe maybe <laughs> Green Lantern. Yeah,
5: yeah, Alan it, Scott version. It, oh, okay, sorry, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's kind of cool. There there's a couple different theories. Uh, some people think that it possibly could have been a brake band, like. A train, you know, somebody that works on the tracks, um, accidentally got decapitated while working on the line. But, but, but I like the I like the second theory better, that it's, most people seem to like, is that it possibly could have been a train filled with Confederate soldiers.
4: Interesting. That
5: yeah, that went missing near this location during the Civil War, and this is possibly they were ambushed by Union troops. And this is a ghost train that's still traveling in the tracks, so that could be what this light is that people are seeing. So I think that's really cool. I just I love that kind of stuff.
4: Or it could just be swamp things since you said it was in the swamp.
5: <laughs> that is true. All right,
4: cool. <laughs> Got to
5: so, work in those comic references.
4: Obviously. All right. Well, mine actually and once again a comic reference. Mhm. So they announced Black Panther. Yes. Well,
5: great trailer trailer check
4: it out yeah it was definitely a great trailer but here's the thing that's interesting to me so i kind of looked it up and you know panther mountain lion cougar puma kind Mm -hmm. of technically all vaguely the same animal a giant cat right and i had always thought that they were you know around virginia i come to find out if you ask the fishing game wildlife department in virginia they'll tell you they are are not in this area at all but here's the part where it gets weird There are multiple reports all the time of big cat sightings, Yes, which is very odd. So where are all these sightings coming from, then, if there are no big cats in Virginia? And why would the Fish and Wildlife Department be covering something like this up?
5: Yes, very quick to, to say no. There, there's I no know. such thing. I it's, know, it's very interesting. <laughs> As you stroke your chin.
4: But the other interesting thing was, I asked a few friends of mine, because I'm like, well, I grew up in the area and I'd always been told there was, you know, yeah. mountain lions and stuff. Everybody said the same thing. Yeah, there's mountain lions around here. Why are you asking? Including one person saying, if you ask a fish and wildlife department, they'll tell you no, but they're lying.
5: That is so weird.
4: It is weird. So it's kind of one of those urban legend things to yeah. where everyone here knows that they're here, but not everyone else around. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we just want to say thank you to Strange Matters Podcast for giving us the opportunity yeah, to talk about some cool fun. some cool paranormal ghosty stuff and some strange animal sightings that shouldn't be in this state mm-hmm. with them real quick. Um, if you want to check us out, you can always find us on... Basically, whenever you find your podcast, especially yep. iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. and SoundCloud, just search Zing This. Once again, that's Z-E-E-N-G. Z. Yep. This. You can also find us on Twitter at Zing This, as well as Facebook. Thank you so much, Strange Master, for letting us participate. Once again, I'm Zinger.
5: And I'm Ellie.
4: And we're from the Zing This podcast.
5: Zing This.
6: Yeah. This is Lil and Fitz from Knock Once for Yes, a paranormal podcast where we talk about supernatural encounters, creepy legends, haunted history and our own spooky adventures.
7: And today we're going to tell you a creepy legend from our home county about a ghostly monk, a mythical knight and a grisly discovery.
6: Now, we're not exactly short of ghosts and legends in Northamptonshire, no, uh, but perhaps one of the most well-known is the ghost of Woodford Church. The ghost was made famous by a photograph taken in 1964 that's widely believed to have captured the spirit on film. If you spend any time Googling ghost photos, as we do... We,
7: which we do quite quite a lot.
6: <laughs> Woodford Church is uh, one of the most frequent pop-up in your search bar, and... The photo itself shows the inside of the church, looking down the aisle towards the altar. And at the altar itself, you can see a slightly misty figure, kneeling as if praying. The head, arms and feet are dark and slightly blurry, whereas the body itself is lighter, perhaps white, a little bit more clear, and looks like a robe or tabard belted at the waist.
7: The small village of Woodford is very old indeed. The local landmarks in the village known as the Three Hills are in fact Neolithic barrows and several Roman artefacts have been found in the area. But the Church of St Mary the Virgin, where this legend takes place, dates back to the early 13th century. By 1866, the church had already been round for quite a long time and was in need of some renovations. So as part of the alterations, they were working on a supporting column to an archway in the nave, and they'd put up a beam to shore up the archway. But when they came to remove the beam, they noticed that the pressure of it against the archway had done a bit of damage. They could see that it had broken some fragments of the stone and that there was something behind the masonry. They pulled out the stone fragments and discovered a mysterious recess with a dark object inside. The workmen just assumed it was a bird's nest or something, so they just pulled it out rather roughly and dropped it. But as it fell to the ground, it broke apart, and they realised it wasn't a bird's nest, but a round box made of cane or bamboo. And within the shattered remains of the box was a bundle of coarse cloth. Now, at this point, they're thinking, treasure! <laughs> they thought they'd found a hidden cache of gold or silver. And rather excitedly, they pulled the bundle open. But what they saw inside was not treasure. And they drew back in horror and dismay, for it was a mummified human heart. What?
6: Mummified heart? Not exactly at the top of my list of things you want to find from (laughs) secret stashes.
7: No, it's pretty far from treasure, unfortunately.
6: I can just imagine the scene of these group of workmen. They've found a secret hole in the wall. They've pulled out this you know, box, basket, whatever it is, and uh, crowded round, <laughs> gold and silver flashing in their eyes. Yeah. They're already spending their Brucey bonus in their heads. They unwrap <laughs> it, and it's a mummified human heart.
7: Just not
6: what you want to find. No, I think I'll pass.
7: Mm-hmm. There is an account from a reverend at the time, Reverend C. Smith, of the heart's discovery in 1866, and he writes that when he arrived at the scene some parts of the heart and box had disintegrated into dust during the fall, but that the valves of the heart were preserved in almost perfect condition, although slightly blackened, either from age or the process of embalming. Now, he was a bit of a quick-thinking reverend, to be honest, and he wanted to preserve this discovery. So he placed the remains of the box, cloth and heart into a glass case, with the heart at the front so it could be clearly seen, then hermetically sealed it to stop further decay. Also in this report, he records that some 18 years later, the artefacts were still preserved in the same condition as the day he sealed them into the box. So it seems we have this Reverend C. Smith and his quick thinking to thank for the fact that the heart, still in its glass case, is actually, to this day, on display in the church. His opinion, and that, of his parishioners also, for the most part, thought that it may have been the earthly remains of a knight who died in the Crusades, buried abroad, but whose preserved heart had been conveyed home to Woodford by his comrades. Now, during my research, I found several suggested names for the owner of the heart. Um, An opinion has varied slightly over the years. But I thought, by far the most convincing, could be found in a reference from the duke of Buccleuch's collection of ancient papers within it is a manuscript book recording rents tithes and mortuaries due to peterborough abbey which was the overlord of the manor of woodford up to at least 1515 now it contains one mortuary entry from 1280 written in medieval latin of one roger de kirkton Even the Middle English translation from the Latin is quite difficult to decipher, to be honest. But it describes that de Kirkton's body was buried in Norfolk where he died and his heart was buried in the Church of Woodford by a sacrist of Peterborough, for which the sacrist received a mortuary of one reddish-brown horse and a coat of mail with armour for legs. So as you can see... Still quite (laughs) difficult to understand that Middle English translation from the medieval Latin.
6: Yes, when we looked at it, we were struggling to understand the sentence that he received a mortuary. Yeah. As far as we were concerned, a mortuary is a room or building where you store bodies. Mm -hmm. So after a little research, we found out that in Middle English, a mortuary is in fact a gift claimed by a parish priest from a deceased person's estate. So it makes a lot more sense that yeah. the parish priest was gifted a reddish-brown horse and a coat of mail with armour for legs. Now, this would imply that the person's heart was perhaps not necessarily a knight, but at least would appear as one wearing armour riding a horse, and you would expect then that accounts of the ghost would be of something that appears to be a knight, but that doesn't appear to be
7: the case. no. It seems overwhelmingly that the appearance of the ghost is that not of a knight, but of a ghostly monk. Which is a bit odd, but there are a couple of accounts that stand out. One woman was arranging flowers in the church when she caught a movement out of the corner of her eye. She looked up from the flowers to see a dark figure in the robes of a monk approach the altar, then kneel in a prayer position. She fled the church in fright, But when she returned with the priest, the figure had vanished. And a second woman had an even more frightening experience when she saw the apparition of the monk at the altar from where she was dusting in the pews at the back of the church. But this time, the ghostly figure started to move up the aisle towards her. Before she could flee in terror, the monk abruptly vanished, right at the spot where the mummified heart had been found. Which is a bit coincidental
6: I find these two accounts fascinating not just because of the similarity between the two, a monk at the altar, but because one is kneeling very much like the famous
7: photograph and the other because it charges the woman. Oh don't, I mean that is the most disturbing thing about that story for me. I mean it's one thing being faced with an apparition that is scary enough in itself but to then have the apparition start coming at you Oh, I, I, th- I would have fled that church long before it had a chance to disappear in front of me. Indeed.
6: So, aside from these tales, the only thing we've really got going for us is the photograph. Now, going back to it, some more detail. that It was taken in the summer of 1964 by Gordon Carroll. He was spending his summer touring local villages with a friend, and he mounted his camera on a tripod to photograph the altar of the church and used a two-second exposure
7: I have a little bit of experience with photography, even with the old, you know, film cameras before the age of digital photography. So a two-second exposure on a tripod, you're not going to get that much blur. However, if a figure was to suddenly dart out from the wings of the church, unseen by the photographer, enter the frame and then exit again, without the photographer noticing that there was a person in this picture you would see a huge blur from one side of the screen to the other. And as it is in this photograph, there is a little bit of blur around the figure, but only so much as you would expect from a person kneeling and just, you know, having a natural sort of wobble or very slight movement while they were sort of posing for the photograph. Two seconds is a reasonably long exposure, certainly enough to take a picture in a dimly lit church with natural lighting. But it's not an absolute age. It's not enough time for somebody to whiz in and out of frame and not be noticed by the photographer.
6: Certainly very odd. Mm. Like you say, you'd either get a blurry streak... Yeah. Or, or, you know... Or you'd see
7: it when you were framing up the photograph.
6: Plus, I don't think two seconds would be enough time to even cross what's seen in the photograph, let alone walk up,
7: kneel down, enough to be captured on film. Exactly. And then walk off without the photographer noticing. Exactly. I mean, two seconds is a long time in photography, but it's not enough time for somebody to whiz in and out of frame without being seen. Also, if there had been another person in the church... The photographer actually then switched positions. Immediately after he took this photograph, he took his tripod to the aisle, to the altar, where he had just pointed the camera towards and took a picture facing the other way. So at that point, he surely would have come upon another person in the church had they been there.
6: You'd have thought. He's adamant that he was alone in the church at the time. And obviously, with any situation like this, you do have to rely on the person giving their story to be honest about
7: it. Mm. Now, this photograph, though, was actually analysed, wasn't it, in the 80s?
6: It was. Um, The photograph was analysed by the makers of the film and computer analysts at a home laboratory. They confirmed there was no fault in the film or developing process and no evidence of a double exposure. In fact, they don't really seem to have come up with much. They concluded that the image showed a real person in the church they surmised a cleaner. All that really tells us is that there was something there when the film was captured.
7: Yeah, I mean that the only thing that really indicates is that the film was not tampered with after the fact, doesn't it? You know that that leads us to believe that all the analysts that looked at it believe that whatever is in that frame was there at the time it was taken. So at this point we're back to witness testimony as is so often the case in these sorts of photographs. You kind of have to take the word of the photographer in this instance. He was the only person there, so it's the only evidence we have really to go on. And he is absolutely adamant that there was nobody in the church and that he definitely would have noticed another person in the room at the time. So, very, very strange.
6: So, other than the photograph and the historic accounts... There's been one more recent account, I believe.
7: There has. In 2002, author Natalie Osborne Thomason wrote in her book, Psychic Quest, episodes from the life of a ghost hunter, of how she'd visited the church, her interest having been piqued by a man who had had a startling seance experience there. Now, during her visit, she asked, as we all do, (laughs) is there anyone there? And in response, she heard the sound of a handbell, which is a bit odd. So she asked again, but this time the response was more violent, and she describes being swept aside by a tall, cloaked figure who was transparent and appeared stretched and out of proportion. And she also experienced an unpleasant, musty smell before the vicar vanished. So it's still going on to this day.
6: It does seem... I, the thing that I've been thinking about since we've been talking about this... Is obviously we were looking at the evidence. The evidence seems to imply it's a knight. The accounts are more that of a monk. Mm. But if you think about it, people back then a lot of the time would have worn cloaks. Yeah. And I'm sure that people now, when you know, you tend to associate a cloak,
7: cloak especially with the hood up, it with, looks like yeah. a ghostly monk, doesn't it? But yeah, I mean, you're right. It could equally be, uh, you know, a knight would just as as easily wear a cloak with a hood up although I've got um, my... to say from the photograph it looks to me like a belted tabard
6: yeah that's what I got and the the thing that just jumped out at me was when you were talking about the final account mm. and it was that he was tall cloaked figure who was out of proportion yeah now was that out of proportion like arms and legs are too long or was it the fact that it was more like a person wearing armour under a cloak and appearing oh. much bigger than oh, a normal person. I hadn't
7: even thought about that. Literally
6: no. just came to me. I just think, you know, what is it a shadow figure in that sometimes they seem to be stretched, a bit yeah. stretched or squat or, yeah. you know, she doesn't really describe whether it's what was out of proportion. No. But it was just a thought, you know, that someone wearing armour under a cloak would appear much larger and
7: imposing. Definitely. And, I mean, the fact that we have this account of this heart being buried at Woodford Church and that the owner of that heart did own armour that he then passed on to the sacrist that buried the heart, it all ties up a bit nicely in a way. It does seem to, doesn't it? But at the end of it still leaves a bit of a mystery and a legend. The photograph is yet to be disproved. The monk is still making his ghostly appearances. And so the legend of Woodford Church lives on.
6: We hope you enjoyed that local legend from Knock Ones VS and that you'll join us again in future.
0: And that wraps up this special collaborative episode of the Strange Matters podcast. We hope all of you listeners enjoyed the show and had a good time hearing from our fellow podcast colleagues. If you are in search for any new podcasts, please check out the Don't Break the Oath, Zing This, and Knock Once for Yes podcast. And also please check out the Paranormal Mythology and Weird Podcast Facebook group, which all of us are members of, plus many more excellent shows. And we'll put up the links to all of this in our website so you can check there as well. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Strange Matters Podcast. To send us your thoughts on any of the stories discussed, you can write to us or email strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. Or once again, visit us or check us out on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Finally, we ask if you enjoy the show and are listening on iTunes, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to us to hear your feedback, and it also helps promote the podcast. So until next time at Strange Matters, take it easy, everybody.
7: See ya.